And as you sit, please take your Bibles out. There's a pew Bible, the red one in front of you if you didn't bring it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 3 through 7. It's on page 1195 of the Pew Bible. Well, we all know the saying, dead men tell no tales. It means that when a person dies, the, the secrets that they knew die with them. Or that the person cannot speak beyond the grave. That might be true for pirates. That's not true for Christians. Chapter 11 is proof of that. After defining what faith is in verses, verse 1, the author of the Hebrews begins to explain what he means by living by faith. And he gives example after example after example about what it means to live by faith. By giving examples of people who have died, and yet they still speak from beyond the grave. Look with me at verse 3, starting in verse 3 of chapter 11. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, believe that he is, and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you will enliven the words that I speak. They are just black ink on white page right now. But Spirit, you can make them live. And you can do powerful spiritual things through them. And that's what I pray, Lord, that you will do that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the context in which these verses come to us is broad, but I want us to remember that just previous, at the end of chapter 10, the writer's, writer of Hebrews has just told this group, this audience that he's writing to, these people that are Jewish converts to Christianity, that are under intense persecution for their faith, And he's writing to them to help give them encouragement 
to persevere through these difficult times, to make it through these difficult times. And the way he is saying you make it through difficult times is by faith. That's how you get through the slough of despond. In 1038 there, he even says, quoting Habakkuk 2, he says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. That is the entrance to this whole chapter 11. He then goes on to define faith in verse 1 of our chapter as assurance of the things hoped for, future, and conviction of the things not seen, present. And we, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, if you're living by faith, those truths, those unseen truths, sculpt your life, right? Not the circumstances around you, but the, that truth. You begin living not out of common sense, not out of pragmatism, not out of feelings, not out of fears of the world around you, but on what God has told you is true now and is true in the future, even though it's unseen. That's living by faith. And the rest of chapter 11 goes on, as I said, to give example and example and example of people that lived exactly that way. How their life was sculpted by the unseen truths that by faith they know were true. Does that make sense? And it's interesting that dead men do tell tales. Tales of how to live by faith. And the first one we see there is Abel. Abel lived by faith. And through his life, it speaks loudly into ours that faith accepts God's terms. Faith, a living faith, accepts God's terms. You know what one of my most hated experience is in life? I just went through it. <coughs> Buying a car. I, I guess I could say hate. We're only supposed to hate one thing, but I hate buying a car. Well, I, as my, I, told, I told my kids, I, I severely dislike buying a new car. <laughs> I recently bought a new car or car. And what makes it particularly difficult for me is the haggling. You know that? Haggling back and forth. You know? You're, you're, and I'm no good at this. I'm really not any good at this. I really loved Saturn's business model. Remember the Saturn? Remember Saturn's? You went in and there's no haggling. That's the price. I love that. I wish all of car buying was like that. But when you haggle, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the best deal, right? You're, you're trying to get things thrown in. You're trying to get the extras. You're trying to get the additional warranty, the extended warranty, all these things that you're haggling back and forth. You're trying to get the best price, right? You always leave, I always leave, feeling like I've been had, right? But you're always trying to get the best price. In other words, you're trying to get the car on your terms, right? That's what you come into that with. I want this car on my terms. And that's what we try and do in all kinds of areas of our, in our life, isn't it? I want it on my terms. I want my relationships on my terms. I want my friendships on my terms. 
I want my job on my terms. I want the church on my terms. Well, the narrative with Cain and Abel found in Genesis 4 teaches us that living by faith means you live by God's terms. If you remember that narrative back there in chapter 4, Moses writes, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the first of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offerings, but on Cain in his offerings, he did not look with favor. We're not told explicitly why in Genesis 4 God looked favorably on Abel's and unfavorably and rejected, actually, Cain's offering. But I think it boils down to two, which is he either brought the right sacrifice or he had the right motive, right? He either had the right sacrifice or the right motive. He could have brought the right sacrifice by faith. Abel Abel brought a blood sacrifice, if you remember, but Cain brought a grain sacrifice or something from the soil, right? As Nancy Guthrie writes in her commentary, Abel grew up in a household of the most famous sinners of all time. I like how she puts that. Adam and Eve. And in a practice that had begun before he was born, when God killed an animal to cover Adam and Eve's bodies and their shame, Abel learned that a blood sacrifice was needed to cover sin. Now, whether it was modeled like that or actually commanded by God, we're not told. But Abel seemed to understand that God required a blood sacrifice. And he believed God. He trusted God. Another way of saying he had faith in what God told him. And he approached God on God's terms, right? Or the other possibility there is that Abel approached God with the right heart. It could have been nothing that he brought. It, couldn't, it could be that the, the two sacrifices were kind of secondary, but the heart was primary. I remember when Saul brought the sacrifices in 1 Samuel 15, right? As he was told to do. But you remember what Samuel told Saul? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, the heart in which you're doing it is the important thing. That's what God wants ultimately is your heart. Whichever it is, the type of sacrifice or the type of heart, external or internal, the point the text is making is that Abel approached God the way God wanted him to and accepted that sacrifice. Abel approached God on God's terms. Cain approached God on his terms, the way he wanted to approach Commentator Richard Phillips says, you cannot come to God any way you choose. You do not just say you believe in God and then decide for yourself how you will draw near to him. Isn't that the truth? You see, you can never come to God on your own terms. 
can never come to God. You can never approach God on your own terms. There's a relatively new movement that I've heard about called seasteading. Have you heard about this movement, seasteading? Seasteading, seasteaders retrofit or build floating homes in the middle of the ocean. There was even a little book written about it called Seasteading, and here's the subtext. How floating nations will restore the environment, enrich the poor, cure the sick, and liberate humanity from politicians. <laughs> a large part of the ethos of seasteading is around a lifestyle of, of self-sufficiency, of independence. You can hear it in the subtext there, can't you? Living your life completely on your own terms. And if that means building a house out in the middle of the ocean to do it, I'll do that. A couple of seasteaders off the coast of Thailand recently said on social media, quote, their autonomy beyond the jurisdiction of any courts or laws of any country. Can't you hear our hearts in that? That's the human heart on display, isn't it? We are seasteaders at heart. We're like Cain at heart. We do not like being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. We, we chafe at that, don't we? And we import that type of heart into our Christianity many times. Yet God makes it clear with the very first narrative after the fall. This is the very first narrative after the fall. In order to approach God, you have to approach God on his terms. It's God's terms only. You cannot seastead. You can't seastead in worship. That's the context of Cain and Abel, isn't it? You can't seastead in worship. That's what we see with Cain's example. He brought what he wanted to bring. And it was rejected. Abel brought by faith what God told him to bring. And it was accepted. Last week when I went and preached at Grace Bible Church, when we did that pulpit swap, I hope you enjoyed uh, and, and really benefited from Scott Daniel. He's, he's quite a, uh, a theologian. Well, I went up and I preached in, in their church. And I got there a little late, okay, and like two minutes late, so things were hurried. And so I went up to the elder, and I said, okay, uh, what, what's my responsibilities here? Just let me know. And, and, and he said, well, you know, you usually come up, and, and, then, and then you do a, a liturgical interpretive dance of the text, and then you preach. And I kind of froze for a second. I didn't know his humor, right? You, you guys picked up on it more than I did. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do here? Liturgical dances. Many people sculpt worship exactly how they want it, don't they? In the 80s and 90s, when I was, when I was growing up in the church, it, it was, and maybe it still is lingering around, there, there was drama. Do you remember those? The drama that they would have, these mini-dramas that would, that would kind of give light to what the text was, was going to be preaching on? Or I had a friend who I graduated seminary with, and 
in the early years, we would keep, keep tabs on each other and connect. And, and he was telling me how he was going down this path of, of having art being painted while he was preaching, an interpretive artwork. I was like, oh boy, careful. I mean, we all kind of come in with our own preferences and, 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 and comfortableness, don't we? I mean, some people do not like the idea of tithing in a worship service. You know, it's uncomfortable passing the plate. But I look at Scripture, and I, I think from the very beginning, God was having his people bring their sacrifices, their tithes, whether it be a pigeon or grain or a bull or a goat, publicly into the temple. See, we like to approach God on our own terms, how we're comfortable. We like to see stead in salvation too, don't we? We want salvation on our terms. I grew up in a town that had a lot of commuters into New York City. And if you've ever commuted, you know that you, you buy a ticket, at least in the old days. Now it's all done electronically. But in the old days, you would, you would buy a ticket with your hard-earned money. Then you'd go and you'd sit down and you'd place that ticket in a little pocket on the seat in front of you. And, the, and then the conductor would walk down and, and see that you bought, bought a ticket, put a punch in it to remind himself that you had paid to ride the commuter train, what mattered was that you paid the ticket. That's what the conductor looked for. That's how many people approach God in salvation. They feel they, they have earned the right to be on that train. They've paid their dues and they display their ticket for all to see. And when their salvation is, is, is inquired upon, they pull out that ticket that they paid for. Many people, when I'm talking to them about salvation, are quick to say something like, well, I attend church every Sunday. They're displaying their ticket. I remember I went early on, like 16 years ago when I got here, there, there were a couple people on the rolls that, that weren't showing up at church, and so I, I went out and visited them to see what's going on. And I remember, I think it was Mary Beale and I went off island to visit Mr. White. Didn't have a clue as to who Mr. White was, but I, had never, I hadn't seen him in the months I'd been there. So I went to visit him, and he came out. He was an older gentleman, probably in his late 80s, early 90s. And sat in his living room and I started to inquire about his faith. And he said, hold on. And he got up and he went into the back. Mary and I were waiting. Came back. And he handed me his membership card to Southwest Harbor Congregational Church dated 1939. I'm saved is what he was saying. For others, they point to their works and they put it up on the seat in front of them. They say, see, look, I've earned it. The train you need to be on is righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's 
train looks very different when you get on it. On this train, the conductor walks through, not looking for the tickets the people have paid, but for people who are penniless. People who completely lack the ability to pay for their ticket. For people who know that. He's looking for poverty-stricken people. People, like it says in the Beatitudes, that are poor of heart. Who know that they do not have the ability to buy the ticket. He's looking for people who depend on a conductor who says, I'll pay your ticket for you. And that's, that's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus lived the life that you can't live, that I cannot live. That perfect life of obedience, not just outwardly, but inwardly too. And he lived it every day of his life perfectly before God. And he wanted to, not out of dry obedience. He wanted to please his Father. And he earned heaven. But he didn't go to heaven What he did is he said, no, you know, I know Blake doesn't have the wherewithal to pay for his ticket. And I know, put in your name, doesn't have the wherewithal to pay for the ticket. So I'll pay for the ticket. And that payment was his life for yours on the cross 2,000 years ago. He substituted himself. He said, it's not Blake whose body will be ripped and blood will be spilt, it will be my blood and my body. I will pay for his sin. And he did. And he died. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later, guaranteeing those who place their trust not in their ticket, not on, I deserve to be on this train, but people say, I can't buy that ticket. I have no place on that train except by that conductor's grace. Those are God's terms. And that is living by faith. The way Abel lived by faith. But we also see another character. There's Enoch's faith. And through Enoch's faith, we learn that faith walks with God. Abel, we learn that faith trusts God's terms. With Enoch, we learn that faith walks with God. Aren't we all so tempted when we get to Enoch, whether it's in Genesis 4 or whether it's in, or Genesis 5 or in Jude or here, aren't we all tempted to make a beeline for what's going on with his translation? What does that mean? Tell me what that means. How did that happen? Is he one of the two ones that are going to come back in Revelation? That's not the point that the author is trying to make. If you, if you read the scripture then publicly that we read together, you'll know, you'll know the point that is trying to be made there. It's the same point that's trying to be made here. Living by faith is walking with God. It's walking with God. Enoch lived by faith. 
Walking with God is a biblical metaphor for living by faith day by day. And his life was marked out by a faithful walk. I love how Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary. He says, faithful living is going at the same place, on the same path, at the same pace as God. Same place, same path, same pace. The same place. You're, on, you're going to the same place. Henry Thoreau said, in the long run, you only hit what you aim at. The Christian walk, brothers and sisters, is a long walk. As Peterson put it, it should be in the same direction. It's a marathon. Enoch walked with God over 300 years, faithfully, daily, sculpting his life around what God tells him and how to live. That's what the author of Hebrews has been reminding this persecuted audience again and again. Keep your mind on the future. That's how you make it through these difficult times, right? Just in chapter 10, he said, keep your mind on that better possession, that greater reward, the promises to come. In the opening verse of of chapter 11, he says this, what is faith? Is the assurance of things hoped for future though that's real and we have to keep that destination in mind as well our aim in the long run is one place where christ is that's why in the next chapter he's going to start out saying fix your eyes on who the author and perfecter of your faith keep your eyes fixed there faithful living also is we have to be on the right path, not just going in the right direction, in the right place. We have to be on the right path. Micah 6.8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You must walk humbly on the path that, that Christ has forged, that Christ has bushwhacked, that Christ walked. Not forging your own. We want to do that, don't we? We say, well, the path goes around this way. I'm just going to go right over. No, follow the path that Christ forged. And his path, as we learned in in Sunday school today, is not an easy one to, to continue to go on. It's a sacrificial path, isn't it? It's a joyful path, but it's but it's full of self self denial, right? It's a purposeful path, but it's full of of suffering and rejection if if you're actually walking on that path. It's a path of of other-centeredness, isn't it? Not self-centeredness. It's a path of radical generosity. It's a path of radical forgiveness. Oh, that person has hurt me again. I don't want to forgive. But remember, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an act. It's a path of radical truth-telling, isn't it? In Jude, the only other place we read about Enoch, Jude tells us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit some exact words that Enoch said to those people around him. He said this, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. 
and to convict the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done in ungodly ways and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what we learn there is, is Enoch was a radical truth teller in an age, think about it, before the flood that was rapidly going down into the most sinful time on this earth. Yet he was a beacon preaching truth. Enoch preached unpopular truth to a very depraved world. We can draw lessons and comfort from Enoch's life of faith. Living by faith means that sometimes we have to speak unpopular truths. Truths that are that are out of sync with culture. Abortion is it's not a choice. It's not women's health care. Abortion is murder. You can't choose your gender. You can't choose your gender. Homosexuality is not a lifestyle. It's a sin. There's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's very unpopular. One way? Only your way, Blake? No, not my way. One way. Enoch's life speaks to us from the grave and tells us living faith speaks radical truth. But we also draw some comfort, not just lessons, but comfort from Enoch's life. And the comfort that we draw from Enoch's life is that it's not all about our effectiveness, but about faithfulness. I have no idea, and the Bible doesn't tell us any idea what effect Enoch's preaching had on that world at that time. It just doesn't tell us. But we can maybe imply that as, as it continued to slide towards Noah, it got worse, right? Enoch's purpose was to be faithful, not effective. And that is really comforting in the environment that we live in, isn't it? God will not say when we get to the pearly gates, I hate that metaphor, but I'm going to use it. He's not going to say when we get to the pearly gates, well done, my good and effective servant. He's just not going to say that. What we do know from Scripture is that he will say, well done, good and Faithful servant. Isn't that comforting? Same place, same path. Living faithfully is also living at God's pace. The same pace. Galatians 2.25 tells us, keep in step with the Spirit. Living by faith means we're walking alongside the Lord. Not lagging behind and not running ahead. Walking alongside the Lord. This is perhaps one of the hardest ones for me because I, I, I fall prey to, to both of what I just said. I love to lag behind the Lord. Why? Why does Blake love to lag behind the Lord? Why do you love to lag a little behind the Lord? Because then you know where you're going. 
All right? And those of us who lag way behind the Lord, you go, okay, I got it. Here's the path in front of me. It's also lagging, running ahead of the Lord. Sometimes we do that, don't we? And that's not living by faith. When you think God is going just a little too slow. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever lived like that? God is going a little too slow here. When I was single 10 years after graduating college, I thought, God is going a little too slow here. And we tend to run beyond where he is. Living by faith means going at God's patient pace. Something that our church has to really teach the intern when he arrives. Church revitalization takes a lot of three Ps. Preaching, prayer, and patience. And when you keep pace with God at the right time, on the right path, at the same place, you please God. That's what it says Enoch did. He pleased God. Faithful walk pleases God. Lastly, we have Noah. And from Noah, we learn that faith works. Faith works. I think that Noah is on this list to show us that faith and action are inextricably linked. Noah had faith in what God said and worked, set on working and building the ark, right? Follow me with just some simple logic here. I'm no person that has a lot of logic. But why did Noah build the ark? What caused him to work? Our text says faith, right? By faith. He believed God, had faith when God said a flood was coming, even though that had never been seen before. He believed God. What if Noah believed God, but never built the ark? What if, if you were living at that time and you went up to Noah and said, Noah, do you believe that a flood is coming? And he said, yep. And do you, do you believe that, that you should build the ark? And he says, yep. But he never picked up a hammer. He never drew the plans out. He never cut down a tree or sawed a board. He never applied one ounce of pitch. But when you asked him, he claimed to have faith in God. What would you say to a faith like that? I think you'd say something really similar to what James was reacting to in his time. James said a faith like that is... Useless. It's no faith at all. Chapter 2. It's dead. And it would lead to death. Think about it. Noah would have died had he said, yep, I believe God, and not built the ark. He would have died. And that's exactly, brother and sister, what we have to hear. That hard truth. Faith works. Many people say they have faith, yet never drop plans for their own spiritual growth. Do you have a plan for your spiritual growth? Many people say, I have faith, but never pick up an axe and start chopping down their sinful habits. 
Do you know what your besetting sins are? Many people say, yep, I have faith, and never apply thick layers of biblical pitch on their own lives. Many people say, I have faith, but they never construct a deep, rich, biblical support system for themselves. They're seafsteaders. Yep, I have faith, and you never work at helping to save others. Yeah, I have faith, but never work over the long haul. Alexander McLaren said, if faith has any reality in us at all, it works. If it has no effect, it has no existence. Through Noah, we learn that we live by faith and that living by faith is a long, hard walk. I think that's one of my major duties as a pastor of of the gospel is to tell people it's a long, hard walk if you're doing it the way God says to do it. Building an ark was hard work. The ark was the size of a modern cruise ship. Building that something that big had to have been hard work. And living by faith, over a hundred years that he built that ark, living by faith is a long work. Living by faith over the long haul is hard. That's the message the writer of the Hebrews is leaving with his original audience. Those Jewish converts who under great persecution were tempted to, to leave that long walk. Through faith, he is saying, living by faith is a long, hard work. This week was big. If you're at all plugged in, you know that Pastor Joshua Harris, through Instagram, claims that he no longer considers himself a Christian. To some who are sitting here, both a little older and maybe a little younger than me, that doesn't, doesn't mean that much. But to people of my generation, this is a ground-shaking event. Al Mohler, in his Daily Briefing podcast, calls it cataclysmic. I agree. Harris was a big influence on the evangelical community in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. In his book, In the 90s, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and his follow-up, Boy Meets Girl, he was a, a major mover in, in, in purity in the singles, in, in the Christian world. You know, save yourself for your spouse. In the early 2000s, he was pastor of a mega church in Maryland. He wrote a book that I still give out, Stop Dating the Church, about a consumeristic approach to church. He preached the gospel faithfully. He had a strong network of solid friends like Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. He spoke at conferences. He helped other people grow. He cared about the kingdom of God and not just his church. By all accounts, he was a hard and faithful worker. Yet he very publicly and very intentionally turned his back on Jesus and jettisoned his faith. 
Now, I don't want to judge him. What we want to do is we want to pray for him. And I pray that the final story is not told in his life. I pray that this is a wandering and not a final abandonment. I pray that this is backsliding and not the first shades of apostasy. But at this existential moment in time, it serves as a warning for us. It magnifies, if you will, the voice of Noah that even though he dead, he's dead, still speaks. Faith works over the long haul. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray, Spirit, that you will use it. Convict us of sin. Encourage us in righteousness. Encourage us to persevere despite what we see around us. In Jesus' name, amen.